Welcome to the Cover Crop Strategies Podcast, brought to you by Source from Sound Agriculture. I'm McCain Vogel, Associate Editor at Cover Crop Strategies. In this episode, listen to a presentation from the Soil Management Summit in Alexandria, Minnesota, that features Anna Cates, State Soil Health Specialist at the University of Minnesota Extension, and Minnesota no-tiller Tom Pifferon, as they discuss how cover crops can help combat drought and what Tom has learned from his on-farm cover crop trials. Our channel is how soil health systems hold water in drought years. And I'm going to show a little bit of data from some moisture sensors that we have on my co-presenter Tom Piperone's farm and some others that actually shows some more moisture in the profile in our drought years. So I'm going to show some, some data directly getting at that. But I'm also going to get more of this, this first word up there, that how word, and talk more about how soil works and, and why it's holding more water in those drought years. And what we know kind of about how a soil health system is going to change your soil properties. So I'll look for a little bit of data and a little bit of how. And then Tom is going to come up and talk about his operation, which is a corn soybean operation in Dodge County, southern Minnesota. And he'll talk about how he's implemented some of these practices on his farms and what he's noticed, noticed in terms of water. And he's going to be really disappointed if you don't interrupt him with lots of questions. So uh, start formulating them, asking all the hard ones. Okay, so the project that we're going to, I'm going to talk about two projects actually that have a lot of collaborators. Um, a lot of these people on the screen either work at the University of Minnesota or work at the Sand County Foundation, which is the lead organization that got some funding from the EPA to do this. Big project across Minnesota with a lot of soil moisture sensors in, in both Minnesota and Wisconsin. The other project I'm going to talk about is my student Bailey Tang's work. This is Bailey. You might see her around. She was here the last couple of days, and you can certainly pick her brain more about her uh, sites, which were just three parent sites in, in southern Minnesota and Rice and Steel counties. Okay, so this is the data from the Sand County project where we have um, paired sites, meaning long-term soil health and conventional systems, and we have these soil moisture sensors in the ground for over a couple of years. Uh, I'm mostly going to show data from 2022, but we have some moisture data from 21, and, and we'll have it from 23 as it gets processed. So what do I mean by soil health versus a conventional site? I hope someone has showed you the soil health principles by day two of the soil management summit, but just in case, here they are up in front of you. Um, we looked for sites that were incorporating these in realistic uh, sort of row crop systems. So we weren't comparing a pasture to a continuous cornfield. That was the too big of a contrast. We were looking for incorporation of these principles in similar row crop systems. There were a few sites that did have grazing and livestock and that kind of thing, but think about incorporating these principles in a row crop context. And then the conventional sites um, you know, were probably doing forward tillage and uh, a minimal rotation of corn and soybeans with no cover crops and no perennial forages or anything like that in rotation. I guess the other thing I'll just say is that we have at least you know five years of these kinds of management practice history. So here's some examples of the kind of practices we see on our different pairs of sites. Uh, these are working farms, things are not completely consistent, we didn't control crop rotation, we didn't control a lot of things. We're instead trying to understand what the long-term impact of a whole soil health system might be. And what we, what measuring that I'm going to show here is soil moisture as um, uh, measured by these sensors put out by the company called Farmer's Edge. And so the sensors have data at many different depths. This figure I'm going to show you have a bunch of different depths of water 
The centers are 4 inches, 8 inches, 16, 24, 32, and 40. Okay, so the way we read this busy figure is that each one of these lines represents a different depth of the sensor, going from 4 inches down to 40 inches. The sites are in different colors. I've got soil health sites on this side and conventional sites on this side. The y-axis is a little funny. It's the percent of field capacity. So the field capacity of the soil varies by texture and structure, and it represents the water that can be held in the soil without draining out. So essentially it would be the moisture of your soil a day or two after a decent rain. Where it's moist, it's not actively losing water to gravity, it's holding water in its pores. This metric, percent of field capacity, I don't want to go into how problematic it is. Farmer's Edge uses it because it is an irrigation scheduling tool. And if you're thinking about trying to irrigate to get up to field capacity, then you want to understand your soil in terms of how close you are to that field capacity. So I have each of these sites is going to have different field capacity, and the numbers here are going to represent how close they are to that field capacity. I put a little hard line at 100% field capacity in every one of these depths and a little dotted line at 75% field capacity, just to give you some context as you go along. Okay, so what do we see as we look at comparisons um, across these sites? Let's follow site eight for a little while, because it shows probably the nicest example of where we saw a soil health site actually increasing in water. So it's generally, if you compare this side to this side, the pink site eight is a little bit higher, you know, nearing on that 100% field capacity in these top depths of the soil, whereas the conventional site is a little bit lower. So there's an example where we really saw a soil health system that was able to hold more water at many depths throughout the profile. Kind of goes all the way down here to 32 inches. You see it's still a little bit deeper. Uh, some sites you don't see that as clearly, right? So let's see, here's site four, and in this case, the soil health site is a lot more moist early in the seasons. This is June and July of uh, 2022, or compared to the conventional site, but later in the year, they're pretty similar. So maybe that's showing that uh, coming out of the winter, that soil health site has a more full moisture profile, but over the course of the year, you've got crop water use, and that effect is dominating more than the previous management. Okay. So that's mostly what I want to show is that we have some sites where we see really nice effects of increasing soil water in these systems and some where we didn't see that as much. I'm going to show Tom's site specifically, which is a little mixed up because uh, this is data collection, especially in 2023. So in some ways this plot is the same. You've got each depth going down, all the way down to 40 inches. You've got that percent field capacity with the lines. In this case, the two colors represent the two treatments. The conventional is in red and the soil health is in blue. And in 2021, the conventional had a higher field capacity for a lot of the year. In 2022, the soil health site looks like it's quite a bit more moist, especially here in this eight inch depth than 16 and 24. So in 2022, we saw an advantage for soil health versus in 2021, either the conventional had the advantage or they were kind of even. But you see, it really depends on the depth that you're looking at. And that, again, could be due to the crop influences there. If you've got a more deeply rooting crop, that could be taking up more water from deeper in the profile, as well as the soil's capacity to infiltrate water. One other piece of information which is off topic that I thought would be interesting to people is that we also had temperature data collected from these sensors. And it's a story that's often told that we have cooler temperatures of the soil surface um, uh, in a soil health system. So I just wanted to show you some temperature data. 
I just wanted to bring this up to show that in, in this study where we were measuring temperature continuously, we saw real similar soil temperatures in conventional and soil health systems. So even if you probably do have reduced evaporation um, with a system with more residue, we're not seeing a, a real decrease. The big difference you see here is um, by site, right? Site by site, you see differences. Over here, this is the only time where we see a little bit of a difference between the conventional and the soil health sites, and this is in June of 2023, uh, where you see some of our triangles here are hovering a little bit lower than our conventional sites. So 2022, things were real similar. 2023, we saw a little bit of a temperature drag in our soil health sites. But all the temperatures are above 60 at that point, so we should be at pretty good temperatures for planting at that point anyway. Okay, one more set of data. This is from uh, Bailey's project in southern Minnesota. So in this case, we just have three sites, but I'm showing the data a little differently, I apologize. Um, but we see a lot more of a clear story for soil health sites, holding a little bit more water in Bailey's sites. So here, the depth is on this axis. The sites are in different lines here, so Blooming Prairie, Cannon City, and Dundas. The soil health sites are the green lines, and the conventional sites are the red lines. So in this case, the water content is here, and anything further to the right is wetter. And so we see more water holding in these green soil health sites um, in both years. That effect is really strong in Blooming Prairie in 2021, and then a little bit less strong down here in our Dundas site. Um, but you see a little bit of it in Kansas City, especially in the middle of the profile, and then a little bit in both years. So we're seeing some, some evidence that there is water held in the profile. But now I, I want to switch and I want to talk a little bit about why that is, what's going on in the soil that allows that. Here are just some images of the soil structure to uh, illustrate what different structure might look like in the soil. Again, I want to thank Bailey for a bunch of these images. The ones on the top show, you know, what we think of as negative issues with soil structure. Here we've got a washout where we're going to have some soil crusting. In the middle we have some cracking where the soil dries out so badly that you uh, have a you know, big crack in the middle of your field. And again on the right some crusting. The bottom two pictures are kind of close-ups of the structure that I'm, that I'm uh, talking about. So this is a study where we did an x-ray, I didn't do this, where someone did an x-ray of the actual pores in the soil. And it shows how tillage changes the kind, uh, the size of pores, and the connectivity of pores. So that I mean that pores at the surface are connected to pores deeper down. Here what they looked at is, this was in North Dakota, they looked at a conventional field, a no-till, long-term no-till field, and a short-term no-till field. The colors represent the size of the pores. So green is smaller pores, and red is bigger pores. And it's just really striking and cool how the no-till system that's been in there a long time has these real vertical, really red, really big pores. And the conventional side has a lot of pores, right? There's a lot of pores in this um, 0 to 10 centimeter level, but there are a lot of green ones. They're smaller ones. So they're able to hold water. Sometimes in, our, um, in that data of families, we'll see that the topsoil is really similar or even more water than the conventional site, but they're not able to conduct water down, right? When you think about what you soil, want your soil to do with water, you want it to hold water, and you want it to conduct water. And this uh, conventional system is, is good at holding water down on the surface, but it gets less so as you get deeper, and there's not a good way to conduct the water down. So more data in the same direction. This is more of Bailey's data from uh, Blue Prairie, so again, southern Minnesota. 
And here, what you're showing is that there's just more big pores in a soil health system. So this shows the pore diameter. As you go to the right, you've got bigger pores. So the fact that the blue lump ranges further to the right than the um, red lump, which is a conventional site, shows that we have just more big pores and fewer small pores in that system. So how does that happen? You really need these roots in the ground. I talked about roots this morning in my little demonstration, and this is another image of how different root systems look in the soil. Those roots are interacting with the soil particles. So they're pushing them around, they're sucking up water, so changing the hydraulics uh, around these particles. Um, and then they're also promoting microbial communities on those roots. I talked about that a lot this morning, so I'm not going to go into it that much now. But the roots are uh, feeding the microbes right next to them, and those microbes in turn are producing sticky substances that bind the particles together. So this is uh, some images of an aggregate in your hand and an image of an aggregate you know, built as a cartoon by a scientist. But I think this one is a really cool one where you get to see the aggregate live. So in this case, this is again an x-ray vision of a soil aggregate where the gray is the solids, the blue is the space, and then the brownish is the organic matter inside. So you can see that there's heterogeneous organic matter throughout this small aggregate. This is on a, a pretty tiny scale. That little scale there on the bottom is 100 micrometers, so a tenth of a millimeter, a hundredth of a centimeter. And you can see that it's not consistent. It's not like when you um, mix up a cake and then you bake it and you get this kind of even, consistent texture. Instead, you have chunks of organic matter in some places, you have big pores in some places, and small pores in other places. And that's good. You, you know, you think sometimes that more even is better. I'm sure if you look across your planting surface, you want that to be relatively even. But in, on this micro scale, this heterogeneity is really good because it means in the dry times, you have some small pores to hold water. And in the wet times, you have some big pores to conduct water. So you want some of both. You want that heterogeneity. The, this is an image of some soil that went through a slow infiltrometer um, run. This little device can rain on the surface of the soil, and then when you take it off, you get either kind of this jello pack in a really well-tilled system, or you get that really nice structured soil on the other side. So um, when we get a little water on the soil, we can really learn a lot about how strong it is and how much, how resilient it is to a rain event. So this is just a, a moderate amount of water, just drizzling down, it's not a really intense rain event. But when you get it in a system that doesn't have the capacity to conduct the water further into the ground, then you can end up with something like this, which is really the texture of jello and how it jiggles. Versus in this case, the soil structure is still intact. It, it was able to infiltrate some water and hold on to it like a sponge, but it was also able to conduct some water deeper down. Okay, I think I'm gonna stop there. Enough soil nerdery for the moment. I invite Tom up to talk about his farm. Oh, thank you. She's been great to work with. That whole team has been great to work with. This project uh, came to us probably early spring of 2021. Uh, Jennifer Hong had called me one day and I remember distinctly what I was doing. I was hauling organic fertilizer. And she wanted to know if I'd be involved in this project. And after thinking about it, thinking about a couple of sites that would be on the same soil type, perfect scenario would have been the same crop each year and uh, we have a big enough site there, kind of behind the bins, where we can put this, put this in. And uh, so I agreed to it. And uh, first year we kind of got off to kind of a sluggish start with the equipment and getting it installed. And, but it went through it. And um, the thing that I was most interested in, 
is, is we've been no-tilling now, I bought my first Kinsey planter in 1985, started no-tilling into bean ground, corn into bean ground at that time, pretty well did it as a primary practice. 2013, we had um, a prevent plant year down in our way, so we had to uh, be a little creative that year. So I got my first experience in raising cinder rye and annual ryegrass and turnips and radishes and all that kind of stuff. And we've kind of evolved since then. This particular field, this is on, this has been no-tilled since probably 2012 is, uh, is what it's been done. Nothing fancy, it's a, uh, it's kind of a sandy loam, um, a lot of feedlot manure, and that sort of thing over, over the years on it. So it's, uh, it was probably a very good field to uh, do this demonstration. Plus it's very close to the buildings. I had one of the sites on my side of the fence, or right across the field, or right across the fence line there, uh, the neighbor there, his was the very same soil type, and that's what we were looking for to put the uh, soil monitors in. But uh, we were we were backwards on rotation of I was corn, he was bean, he was bean, but I was corn. But uh, that it, it worked out anyway. So so what led us up to this thing was uh, I served in in uh, township government for thirty years, and um, every spring uh, mid April. You go on out for a road tour, and as you were looking at cleaning ditches and that, and the cause of that, and the cost that it was costing us, and I could tell my other supervisors and even the county engineer, my chief, and I says, "What the heck is going on here?" And he says, "Well, you guys are all putting dirt in our ditches, so we got to clean them out. This is when we're getting frost boils in the road. This is really what brought me to the point of figuring out what am I doing? We had really erosion, we had gully erosion, and that kind of stuff." And I never really thought about the cause of it. And of course, you know, we had the four-wheel drives, we had the deep rippers, we had the field cultivators, and we had all that stuff. And uh, we used it to the max. And my son says to me the other day, he says, Dad, he says, how many dollars do you think that you wasted over the years by full west tillage? I said, I don't know, I've been at this 49 years, and they want to know that number. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> because we've been, we've been no-till, and one of the things that our note says we want no-till is we track all of the equipment hours every year. January 1, we go through the radiometers and, and that and the tractors. You can't believe the few hours that we put on the equipment every year is what we've done. And this is still feed cattle and this sort of thing, but it's been an interesting journey. Uh, we started 20 years in the dairy business, and then we've always fed cattle until now. And I had this thing done, I said, well, you know, it's time for me to set aside and I had shoulder replacement in case you're wondering. And uh, so that's kind of where, where we were at. So that's why this project kind of intrigued me, is to figure out, you know, how much water infiltration are we getting into the soil by reducing, reducing tillage, relieving structure there, um, planting cover crops, and that sort of stuff. So this is, a, this is the crew, this is our crew, Denise, my wife sitting back there in the corner somewhere. And uh, we have four children. Uh, eight grandchildren, uh, six grandsons, two granddaughters. The, as the youngest ones there, they'll be the fifth generation of Piper on farming. My, my great granddad actually came out of southwestern Wisconsin. He was a, a Dutchman, <laughs> Belgian Dutchman, if you want to call it that. So, you know, that's kind of where, where we came from. And uh, that was is kind of our, where the family started. My dad was a guy that he had six sons and five daughters. And he was labeled Big Glenn. And uh, he was a big guy. 
He never um, thought twice about how many, how many things that he could find us to do. I mean, that guy did trucking. He did, um, uh, he was a dairy farmer. He uh, had custom operation business. We were always busy, so there wasn't, uh, it, was, it was all hands on. So that's this part right now. This is kind of where we, where we started here, when we started no time. This is the challenges that we were having, is uh, this, was, this was bean ground that, uh, that had been tilled in the spring, uh, planted, crops come off, and this is what we were seeing in the spring. If you uh, were out there for any reason whatsoever, we were getting a lot of this real erosion, and uh, how do you stop this? And that was our, that was our challenge. You know, and I relate this back to what I'm seeing still tasting in the road dishes from, from some of my township work. It's a long process to, to uh, bring this to a halt. And one of the worst things that we've seen is, is uh, being creative like we were putting on fall anhydrous a long, gradual grade. We would see if it gets a January rain or February rain or something like this, it would just gully those things out. So we just can do that practice 15 years ago. And uh, go ahead. And this is this is some more of what we see, <clears throat> but this was after we started doing some uh, some cover cropping and putting annual rye in the fall. These particular photos here, uh, this rye was planted with a uh, Kinsey 3650 plant, corn planter with that soybean, it had a milk disc in it with a rubber backing on it. So we were planting in 15 inch rows. It was quick and easy than what I had at the time, and it went very good. We used it up until two years ago and had uh, very good luck. This is when we started to see the healing process from what was going on there. We started accumulating residue. We were able to plant through residue. We were using trash whippers. We were using closing wheels and having very good results. But if you notice, when you got that much residue in the ground, you don't have a lot of biologic activity. And this is what we were seeing, is, is we were kind of short the biologic activity because it's corn, soybeans, corn, soybeans. Now we're introducing rye. Of course, corn is a high carbon. Rye would be high carbon if you let it go to knee high or more. So, you know, it was it was one of the things that we were we were making progress. And, uh, and, but we were still seeing, even when you see the cross, them, that top of the ground wasn't taking the water and it was fragile. And this is, well, this is another reason why this whole project kind of intrigued me. How do I improve that water infiltration? Go ahead. This was uh, some cereal rye that was planted. Still green. I mean, one of the first years that we planted cereal rye, we planted it like on early October on bean ground. Um, it got probably two to three inches of growth on it. A good friend of mine, Kurt White, come to me in early April. He's one of actually seeded for me. And he says, let's go dig up the ruts. Well, he's 80 years old. So we went and dug in this field. We had, after the snow melted, because the ground never froze that year, we had about three inches, four inches of rye growth underneath the snow. And we dug down 30 inches with the shovel. I said, Kurt, you can finish. I'm not going to. And the roots were still going. So this told me that this is, you know, this is a way to, to improve soil health and uh, movement. Go ahead. This is some more shots of uh, cereal rye as we're, as we're progressing. Uh, planting, planting into, uh, these are soybeans into, into cereal rye there. That cereal rye, like I said, it's planted with a corn planter. Go ahead. Uh, more stages of it as it's, as it's growing. We're getting, I'm getting brave enough at this point in time that I'm going to plant green. So, and I tell you, <clears throat> first year that I planted green was 
2016, I had just bought a 1630 Kinsey planter, rebuilt it, put, put precision plant downforce on it, um, put a different type of closing wheel on it, put nitrogen and stuff on it. And the first field that I planted, I took my shoes off, my socks were rolled up and took my shoes. I was not comfortable with that. You just never have done it. And it was tough on the guts. <laughs> I, can tell you, I can assure you that. And that was that was some more of that ride that we were we were getting ready to uh, we were getting ready to plant green into. Yeah. Um, is all this uh, bigger rye is this still planted in rows? Yeah, this stuff is still in rows. We didn't we didn't switch to narrow row rye until three years ago. So uh, so that's that's a little that's a shot of it to get some get some growing up. Go ahead. When you say rows, do you mean like thirty inches apart? Fifteens. Fifteen million inner plants on the planter. That was our height on. So yeah, you know, height of uh, four wheelers knee high, so we're twenty-four inches. We're gonna plant green in the nest. Go ahead. And those were those were some more as the stuff probably an early May shot uh, as that ride came up and took off. This was uh, one of the one of the first fields that we planted sewer rye on and then we're gonna plant corn into it. Everybody says the Lulopathy Tom is gonna to kill you. And I said, okay, well, well, we'll deal with it. I said, is, is it a Lulopath? I mean, I talked to a lot of people. I went to no-till conference that year, talked to a lot of people, and you hear a lot of horror stories. And I thought, well, if I don't let it get away from me, I put nitrogen down at planting time, we put some starter fertilizer on, put some zinc on the starter, and watch for slugs, and we're gonna get by. This is what happened. We planted up, it was a new Syngenta number that year. Uh, it did drop some ears, it looked awful good. First year into this thing, we planted it. No, we planted it green, we killed it, didn't have a slug issue, and um, came out of there 216 bushel dry corn on that, on that eating. So I, 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 I had a positive start. And um, this is a, is a shot of, of, of our 1630 planter setup. It's got nitrogen out the back, it's got road cleaners in the front, it's got closing wheels on the rear, it's got Delta Force on it. And um, you gotta pay attention when you're running it. My son has learned that. And uh, this is it in the, in, the, in the shed there. This thing also has, uh, we've got Keaton seat firmers on it. And on those Keaton seed furrows, we use that mojo spring on it to uh, give those things some extra strength because we want that seed embedded in the bottom of the trench. And we will normally plant two and a half. We plant it up three inches deep and they're very good stands. Uh, we kind of plant in the moisture, but we don't want to plant so deep that we're getting in the mud. So uh, this is where, you know, the infiltration thing and that is all part of the, of the water management thing that I talked about. Because when you go in, when you go to plant corn, at least in our area, you can have one end of the field in the perfect situation. You can have the middle of the field where she's gummy, maybe tracks a little bit, and then the other end maybe a little bit dry. So you got to pick a happy medium. So this is kind of why I use these type of attachments on it. When we first set this planter out on the closing wheels of it, we use a cast iron on one side, and we use a finger till on the other side. It worked fairly well, except when you get into a real baggy rye, or you get into seeding into alfalfa or clover, and the cast iron closing wheel will not will not crumble the trench. It close the trench, but the trench is dries, it will open back up, and that's one of the things that you definitely want to avoid.
We'll come back to the episode in a moment. But first, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Source from Sound Agriculture, for supporting today's podcast. If you want to make your fertilizer plan more efficient, source it. Source from Sound Agriculture optimizes the amount of crop nutrition supplied by the microbes in your soil, providing 25 pounds of nitrogen and phosphorus per acre. It's cost-effective and easy to use. Just throw it in the tank and spray in seed. If you want to unlock your crop's potential and increase ROI, there's only one answer. Source it. Learn more at sound.ag. And now, let's get back to the episode. So last year, um, we took the cast iron closing wheels off and we bought, we bought Martin closing wheels to put on the other side. We got the finger till on one side, we put the Martin closing wheel on the other. We've got uh, nitrogen coming out the back. We split it, drill it on both sides of the row. We generally use 32% or 28, whatever we have. We always mix ATS with it. And then on the other side, we run the finger till. Last year, we ran those, those things about uh, two and a half inches apart. This year, before we go to the field with it, we're gonna take those, those closing wheels down to about an inch. What we've seen was when we got into clover and uh, alfalfa and maybe some hard ground, is the fact that we weren't crumbling the trench like we wanted. We were closing the trench, but we weren't crumbling it. If you're not crumbling the trench when it dries out, it'll open up in a lump. And if it opens up in a lump, my concern there is if you're in the cereal rye or something like that, that's the point that slugs like the seed, and you'll have slug issues. Now, when I go to no-till conference, they oftentimes talk about slugs in um, Ohio, Western or Eastern Illinois, Indiana, uh, a little higher rainfall areas when they get into uh, killing cereal rye after they plant it, when it gets into that that uh, slime stage. You know, you'll kill rye one day, you go back up to the other day, next day, and it looks like snot on the stalks and it's drying. And that 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 is apparently a good time when slugs like it. So we're very conscious to make sure that we have that seed embedded, that we have that, that seed sidewall crumbled, and uh, actually get just a little bit of a mound on top of it. Get, the only bad thing about when you run closing wheels this tight is if you've got some little hard heads in the fields, you'll get one caught in there every now and then. You're gonna, it's gonna jump off and kick it backwards to kick it out of there. We're fairly fortunate with no tillage and that sort of thing. We have very little problems with that. And the other one is, of course, the Keaton Seed Farmer. These are the very first closing wheels that I started off with on a, on a 3650 Kinsey planter. These are Xaptas. These row wheels have probably got 10 to 12,000 acres on them. They actually, if you look at the Xapta book, they'll actually have a square tip on them. Uh, these are worn that much. But last year we were just a tad bit dry when we planted soybeans, and these things were perfect because they would lay up a little bit of a mound over top of the seed trench as you as you planted with them. So how many more years I'm gonna be able to run them, I don't know, but they're, they, they work great at this point in the stage of the game. They will pick a root if you uh, have some loose corn roots on top of the ground from a marker that's flipping them out or something like that. But they generally will knock them right out of there without any problem. But the Keaton seed firmer, in my opinion, is, is, a, is a must if you want consistent seed depth and seed placement. So are you saying that you switched out to these wheels because it was dry or you use them every year, you just like them especially when it's dry? I like them especially when they're dry. You know, they, they work extremely well when, they're, when it's moist out because these particular wheels, you can put a wedge in there and you can tip the bottoms of them in and that, so you can bring them closer together so you can get that 
Now, the rooster tail effect, I'm gonna call it, behind it. So I, I like them. I mean, if I were gonna go out and buy a new set today, I would go buy Martin's. This is, I'll show you a little later on when we get through this thing, I'll show you what we did with a drill. And we really like the Martin ones, but they just came out a year ago. So these were put on 10, 12 years ago. And this is just a, a planter maintenance thing we do in the spring. We have a couple black top pads around there, we hit percentage. And uh, we'll set the planter up and we'll go out and drive it on that black top pad and uh, find out if we have our row wheels centered over top of the row. Uh, seat firmers and stuff are, are in place and uh, that sort of thing. But planter maintenance is, is a big deal. Whether you've got linkage arms or whether you've got planting units or whether you've got uh, uh, parallel linkage bushings, uh, that type of stuff, it's uh, very important to uh, make sure that that stuff is up to snuff because this is your tillage tool and your planting tool and the whole bit. So we spend a fair amount of time going through that thing to make sure that it's uh, the best that we know. Last year, we put the STP blades on. If you're familiar with those, those are the notched ones. And we took the scrapers off and had very good luck with it. Uh, we ran a set of STP blades for four years on four rows prior to that, and then we switched the whole unit over to them. And uh, last year was a little bit drier. Um, we have seen in the years when, on a Kinsey planter, when you're using a three and a half millimeter blade with the scrapers that they have, if you get into some loose spots or some lighter soils, where you'll see some blades slide because there's too much pressure on them. So that's why I took the scrapers off. Uh, just had a gut feeling that this would be the way to go. And, and it worked out well last year. Ask me next spring how it worked. And we'll, we'll give you another assessment. But I think we're on the right path. This is a study that we started. We have a group of people in our area, Byron area farmers that uh, we gathered probably almost 10 years ago now. There was probably 20 of us that got together. We still meet at least once a year, twice a year, um, and put on little different seminars, have farm tours and this sort of stuff. But we, we cooked up with Greg Klinger. He just came into extension at that time. We had, we had him start doing water, or uh, tile water testing for a lot of nitrates coming out of tile lines. And I think he's got 20 sites or something. I happen to end up with five of them. And I was lucky enough to get a conventional tilled field beside us where we have uh, two outlets and then this conventional one. And this is this is kind of, this is on our our site where where the tile water drainage out of that one is uh, is is running. We're pretty consistently under under that uh, way under that that ten millimeter or ten um, what do they call it parts per million of, of nitrates in the water. But this is data that we've collected. Now we're gonna have about a gap in it because Greg took a different job and we just have another person that started on, so we're gonna continue this thing. And this all flies in the face if you see when EPA came to southeastern Minnesota here two, three weeks ago and started talking about water quality issues. This is kind of our documentation as to you know how cover crops are helping our situation and how maybe greater adoption would be would be the first thing that we should try before we try the regulatory process. We also, like I said, we were also in the cattle feeding business. That's uh, spring rye. Um, cattle turned on probably a little too late, but um, they sure do well on it. They, they, we, we, we bring stockers in. The last 10 years, we brought all of our cattle out of Lexington, and uh, they come in. And when you run those things out there in an open trap like that, your herd health problems just disappear. I mean, we just, just don't have 
very little, very little treatment. And uh, but cattle been extremely long. So, so I'm kind of out of the cattle business at the moment. This is one of our field days that we had probably three years ago, four years ago now. It was a spring one right ahead of planting. NRCS was involved. They did the rainfall simulator out there. We did uh, water infiltration rings. And they also did the slate test where you put that that's on top of the jug. And we have 50 to 60 people show up at these things, serve pizza for dinner, and uh, that sort of thing. Very long, very long attendance. Uh, last fall, we had a we had a field day at the farm, uh, did some root pits, um, talked about equipment. Uh, we had 80, one or 82 people show up at that, at that field in September 12th. Uh, year before that, at the farm, we set up um, a Ukrainian built um, grain screener and we screened oats and showed the people how you can, how you can play with the poor quality oat and make a good marketable quality oat out. And uh, that was that was well received. Also, we had a, we had a fabulous turnout for that one. Also, so we continue to do things, and and even even the doubters in the neighborhood are so damn curious that they'll come, and uh, which is encouraging. Good yeah. This year we dug uh, we dug two root pits out there in this field where we had the soil monitors, and uh, that would be Steve Lawler from Lawler County SWCD in there, kind of explaining it. And he, as he dug through the profile on that thing, he says, Tommy said, I can't find a compaction layer in this thing. It was right inside of the driveway. We're going there with semis, uh, haul manure, liquid manure in there, grain carts. And right where that arrow is about the only place that he could find compaction in that, in that four foot trench that we dug in there. And that was, you know, and the aggregation was fabulous in it. So for the field that's been no till that long, um, he was really surprised that we didn't find a compaction layer as you move in that driveway. This is some of the root structure. Anna talked about root structures out there this morning. These, these, some of these roots, he followed them all the way to the bottom of that trench. And those are big corn roots, you know, in there where the soil probes are. So, um, yeah, if you, if you give the plant the opportunity, it's, uh, and you don't have sidewall spearing and that kind of thing, those roots are, are they, they will go for a while. But, there's there's another shot of of uh, that block that uh, where Steve is in the trench. That is the picture is probably down about 24 inches. You'll notice how you're getting that uh, across the bottom of that thing. You'll see the horizontal lines in there where that stuff is kind of plating. That stuff will come apart. You know, just very good, very very good structure in the uh, in the soil. But it but it all takes time. I'm sure if we'd have done this five years ago, it'd be much different than what it is today. But but um, you know, that's one thing about this field is, is we had beans on there with corn this year, beans. Four years ago, we had beans on it. And we were consistently har harvesting the cereal line off it, um, you know, mid-May for um, a feedlot roughage is what we were doing. And, the, and the, I was walking across the road there that one morning and the guy at the co-op stopped. And he stopped, he's putting a plant back in there. And I was I haven't decided. I don't, Particularly get along with the guy, that's irrelevant. He said, Well, pick your poison, you're going to lose 40 bushel or four tub, whichever one you want, and drove off. We haven't spoken to this day. I ended up planting beans in there. I planted the beans in there the day after we took the cereal ride off and we bailed it. We planted beans, so they went into moist ground. We were getting that good capillary action from the roots yet. And we harvested those beans on the 16th of May, planted an 08 bean, never 70 bushel. 
So you can't argue with, with those kind of results on it. And they, they, this is why I've been a, a very firm, strong believer in, in going this route, uh, not only from the equipment standpoint, but from uh, just the standpoint of, of uh, it's just the right thing to do as far as, as far as if you want to pass a decent file on to the next generation, it is the way to do it. The other thing, I, and I haven't done it this fall, I've been playing with this arm a little bit too much. Last thing, when we put our numbers together as to what, you know, cropping costs we're, gonna, we're going to do for us, we had, we had uh, oats, we needed 83 bushel of oats at five bucks to break even. And um, soybeans, we were at 890 was our cost of production per bushel, and corn we were at 411. Now I'm figuring $250 an acre land rent, and uh, that was what our input cost, cost us did. I haven't crushed the numbers here yet this fall when we got, uh, when we finished harvesting, but we had some pretty amazing results for even given as dry as us. This is also a shot of the planter when we had our field day there in September. Uh, I pulled those things out off so people can ask questions, take a look. And that uh, tremendous amount of interest, questions about iron and how to operate it and what you do and what attachments are right. And, and that, and I don't know what attachments are right. I have no idea. It's just, I find things that, that you can repair and you've got access to and uh, you, you go with it. We also do some interseeding. Dodge County here a few years ago built an interseeder that's a 40 footer. They do it or they offer the service in uh, mid June. And um, it's been kind of a hit and miss type deal. And uh, the mix, the normal mix that we use is 17 pounds of annual ryegrass, three pounds of medium red clover, half pound of turnip, half pound of rat or of, uh, of kale, and uh, 21 pounds. We put that onto the, onto the acre, and it's just blown on, it's just blown under the canopy in it at about you know V4 to V6, V7, whatever Mark Manning or operator can get through it. And this is kind of some of the results that we had on 80 this year. Now this 80 up here, six years ago we bought this farm, seven years ago we bought this farm with seven fields. And we took the fence lines out, cleaned up some, some stuff, and kind of put it together. Even with this amount of, of uh, annual ryegrass, you've seen some clover in there. Uh, any place where the side grass rig ran over a row, you can see all kinds of kale. Good deer out there, though. That, that field yielded 224 this year. Uh, as dry as it was, even with this long undergrowth on it. And across that 80, that growth was fairly consistent across there. So I was I was rather pleased with it because normally we struggle to get a good interseeding. And I'm not sure whether it's timing, whether it's sunlight, and I believe that is a large part of it, but I think a larger part of it is chemistry. Uh, this would have had verdict and roundup on it as a burn down. And then we probably came back with three and a half to four ounces of status ahead of ahead of putting that down. And that was that was the herbicide program on it. Uh, seen a water hemp here and there, but that was pretty well yet. Um, field wasn't planted until oh golly, I'm gonna say it was after Mother's Day when we had that two weeks of solid rain down there. We planted it after that and that sort of stuff. But it was a it was kind of a humbling experience. The best part of this whole thing is. There's less than 75 pounds of nitrogen on it. It was soybeans last year. Is all we had on it. We put we put eight gallons of, uh, of uh, 28 on it, or 32 percent on it. Two gallons of ammonium thiol as a, as a side dress, and ten gallons of water, 
and I had Joe Vaughn in a side dress it. He just used a Hagee with drop nozzles on it, and uh, that's where we came out of that field. And uh, so, you know, I mean, this is the field that we have, we have never tilled it since we've owned it, except for the fence lines and the tile lines that we put in there. And that's another, another shot of that. That is probably a little denser, go ahead. Is it 70 pounds of actual inventory product? That's all I put on it, right. Yep. We put on, our normal program is like 11 gallons of 32% at planting, along with three gallons of ammonium thiol. Then we come back at side dress time with kind of, we're starting to do more uh, nitrate nitrogen testing and about that first, second week in June, third week in June. And we're seeing, we're seeing higher levels of nitrates this year than what we've ever seen. We've seen uh, those PTS things come back from over 90 to 95 pounds of nitrogen, available nitrogen, 12 to 24 inches. So we just go in and, you know, maybe it's a little insurance, maybe it's, you know, we look, we look for that 135 level at, at that time of the year as a total available units of nitrogen. So that's kind of where we're at. Do you, have, do you have cattle on here? Is that a source? No. There was, there was some pet pack manure spread on it. And uh, it wasn't, you know, I, I probably hauled 60, 70 loads up there, um, spread very uniformly, covered just about all of that 80 with a little bit of anal and I spread manure, pretty well do it myself. And uh, we, get a, we get a little bit of manure over a lot of acres. We use a slinger spreader, and I like to kind of compost that manure down a bit. I don't, uh, it's not something that lasts for a year in a compost pile, but I like to stack it up and let it stand for about a month and then uh, turn it over and spread it. So we get a fairly decent job of uniform spread with it. This is kind of some of the results. This was the ryegrass. I would never expect annual ryegrass to have this much growth on it, but in my opinion, where he ran over the row there, that's strictly a function of sunlight. Strictly a function of sunlight to let that thing go. Plus the chemistry didn't hold it back. And you see, when I harvested that field, um, we had clover in there that was probably three leaves on us about this tall. And I was just coming, I don't, it's probably not gonna amount to a whole bunch as far as contributing to a nitrogen, to a nitrogen factor if you're going back to a, a, a cereal rye or a corn crop or something like that in it. But the fact that it was there told me that the chemistry is, is pretty close. Yeah, I'll just say if you want to, you know, you got to kind of earn the right to drop your nitrogen rates like that. So I would say drop them cautiously if you're early in this process. And Mary Sol will talk more about the actual capacity of the cover crop to give you that nitrogen. Uh, this was um, before I, we got we got snowed out when we were picking that field, and I was back up there and I just turned a shovel, took a shovel with me. This was uh, a shot of that of the last field there. And that's a shot of the uh, of what I turned over. What saw an aggregation look like? Pretty, pretty, pretty decent stuff. This, this is this is another venture. We're going to move away from corn and soybeans that Byron area farmers are doing. We're into the oat business now. Twenty twenty two, we had about nine hundred acres of oats between eight or ten growers. Um, had it marketed for seven dollars and thirty eight cents a bushel. Actually, got a check for that too. And uh, last year we had 2,100 and some odd acres. Um, and it's being delivered now. It's all going to grain millers at this point in the stage of the game. We're at five and a half a bushel on it. Uh, but they want test weight, they want quality, and they don't want it desiccated. And uh, 
Our hope program down that way is growing. I think this year, it looks to me like it could it, it could push into the three to four thousand acre mark in our particular area. It's all food grade oats. Uh, going to uh, this stuff is happening to be going to grain millers. Uh, there's going to be more and more interest down there as far as our oat program goes. And we've got Quaker Oats taking a look at it, having some discussion with General Mills. Uh, of course, uh, grain millers is is always interested in it, but they're tough people to deal with. But we've got one guy, we just kind of let him do the do the marketing thing of it so he can talk with everybody. But it's been a good program for us. Um, Ray Leffingwell was telling us he's a he's a hay distributor, straw distributor from down in Zumroda area. He said, if you want a square mill straw out of a conventional solar combine, he said, I can get you $300 a ton for it, delivered to the horse tracks in Chicago. Our average, our average straw yield is slightly under about a ton of recoverable product an acre. So that's kind of a pretty good enhancement, but most of us run rotary combines. So, so there is opportunities of five minutes. Yeah. Okay. Can I just say about the oats, and then we should probably open it up for questions. You know, a third crop of rotation increases yields throughout the rotation. So if you're thinking about oats or wheat, don't just look at the price of your wheat or the price of oats. Think about how it's going to increase your yields across the rotation and make a more profitable overall system. So these, these third crops are really important and you can get cost share for these just as well as you can get cost share for cover crops. 20 bushel. We've consistently shown corn behind oats has been a 20 bushel bulk. My, my, uh, my colleague Yoko, the small grain specialist, would say, why you terminate the rye? Just grow rye. Just grow that third crop. That's always his line. And it's a good one. It's a good consideration. So, what, Go ahead. What varieties of oats are you finding working for them? We find rains and Rushmore. Rushmore was a variety that came out of South Dakota probably four years ago. It's a mid a mid-oat, probably 36, 38 inches, um, heavy test weight, uh, nothing to see, 40 pounds of test weight out of it. Uh, Rains uh, is an early oat, fairly short, 32 inches maybe is the max on it. Planted at about 120 pounds to the acre. Last year we were able to seed oats with about the 10th or the 14th of April. Um, some of us were seeded on frozen ground. Uh, Kind of everybody uses kind of a 30-30-30 program as far as nitrogen goes. Make sure we get in there with a shot of 2,4-D, of, uh, especially along the waterways, headlands, and this kind of stuff. If, you've got, if you don't have an underseeded 2,4-D, it's fine. If you've got it underseeded, you've got to use MCPA to clean out any kind of broad leaves, water hemp, you know, that kind of stuff. Generally, water hemp is not an issue that time. And then um, a fungicide. You know, one or two fungicide applications, it's just a real light rate. I mean, half rates seem to be totally adequate to control leaf rust. And um, it's been a good program for us. I mean, the guy that kind of got this whole thing started, his average yields right now are pushing 140 bushel. You know, he's doing very, very well on it. And oats is all about testing. And, and, and that's, that's the, whole, the whole game of oats. Certainly, in the ground that you've had long-term logo, what have you seen for the ant matter if the increase? Uh, what's it, how's that tracking? You know, we have not seen a huge increase in our typical Midwest lab soil test, maybe a half percent, two-thirds of a percent. Oh, well, we see 
is infiltration and aggregation, and that's where it is. But we've cut our fertilizer up. Our, you know, in a thousand, thousand acres, it was nothing uncommon for us to spread um, 50 to 60 ton of potash, 70 ton of potash every year, and 30 ton of MAP or DAP, whatever we had, MES, whatever available. We've cut that back 50%, 60%, and we're not seeing yields come down. And I think it's because we're seeing better biologic activity. So last year was kind of our first year into, into um, using some of the biologics. That jury, that door is still open, but we have a compost pile going right now, and we're gonna try to make our own compost tea this spring. Probably gonna be a flop, but I guess that's somewhere. They got a, got a couple of guys that got really a lot of interest in it. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna master that, but it's gonna take us a while. We gotta find somebody that really understands a microscope. You look through a microscope, they can identify bacteria, you can back, you know, protozoa, fungi, that sort of thing. I'm not good enough at it yet. I got one sitting in the office there, and I play with it every now and then, but I'm not there yet. Anna's gonna help me with it, she said. She understands that totally. I'll do my best. <laughs> yeah, I would say, you know, look for organic matter function as much as organic matter level, right? So when you talk about your organic matter providing functions, even if it's not growth. Other questions? Behind your, behind your oats, sorry. Behind your oats, what are you, what are you doing behind your oats uh, crop? What am I doing behind the oats crop? <clears throat> I have put big red clover at planting time, you know, like three to four pounds. There's some data out there that says that maybe that can be a deterrent for yield a little bit. And you, I don't know about that yet. I mean, I've heard some rumblings about it. Um, I have had other, the first year we did it, I came back in with a cocktail mix of uh, annual ryegrass, um, clover, uh, kale, turnips, sunflowers, soybeans, uh, yeah, I don't know, it's probably some veg in there. And I tell you, I really like that. I did that on a very, very poor farm, just a piece of junk that some guy begged me to farm. And, uh, we didn't put much into that. We didn't put any, we put starter on, we didn't put anything else on. We took 165 bushel dry corn off the following year. Yeah, that. I mean, it, this is just garbage, is what this farm was. So I, I, I personally like that cocktail mix afterwards, um, especially in our situation where we could, we could, you could hay that if you wanted to, you could graze it if you wanted to, or you could let it go down and use it for, you know, just ground cover. I mean, it's 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 a, it's a beautiful mix, but you got another trip. You got to go back out there and go. Yes, sir. Are you putting that cocktail mixture just talks a little on a 50-inch row too? Well, we went to uh, we went to a 750 drill. We didn't get that far yet. <laughs> we went to a 750 drill, John Deere drill. I bought a used one. Uh, rebuilt it to the Exacta. Uh, there you go. To uh, I used some of the Exacta parts and used some Needham parts. Uh, it's a big job to rebuild those things. They're 500 bucks a row, and it's about three hours a row, 15 quarters, 24 rows. So it's a lot of work to do it, but it works like a slit slit. This thing has got, uh, has got, that is a, Martin just came out with that closing closing wheel on it, and it's a cat's meow. <coughs> a, uh, a John Deere no-till drill, most of you are probably familiar with it, they run those single displays at a seven degree angle, so you actually get a little bit of a, a little bit of a hump in the dirt. Your boot runs in there. It'll drop your seat in the bottom. You have got a, um, a ninja flap on the bottom of them so you don't get seat bounce. 
You've got a narrow herming wheel running about an inch behind that seat boot that'll shove that seat in the ground. And that wheel will actually come and it'll actually put about yay much dirt in a little bit of a mound, rooster tail over top of that seat. You got just a perfect situation to do it. The neighbor came to us, he's 65 this year. He says, can we run, can I run the drill this fall? And I said, Aaron, you deal with that. And uh, he did about 700 acres for that thing, 15 footer. Uh, the tractor's got guidance and that sort of stuff on it. Just, just, it did a beautiful job. The only thing that we did learn was uh, the first field we went in, I started kicking stalks behind it and he wasn't running it quite deep enough uh, because you got to compensate for the amount of trash on top of the ground in order to get your boot to the right seed depth. So we ended up going down about another half inch to get us a lot of inch planting depth because you're running over. We run at an angle and we plant. We don't run down the row. We run about 10 degrees off the row. So you never have one row of, of, uh, of uh, rye, cereal rye that runs right out down the row. And uh, seems to work very good. We run, we run Palmer stocking, stock rolls, familiar with them at all. They will confetti that stuff up about like this. Probably the smartest thing I ever did as far as I had two or three Case IH chopping heads, never liked them. And don't like them to this day because they wing roll the outside roll. If you go down the field westbound, turn around and come back, those heads turn, you'll get a wind, you'll get a wind roll between your eighth and ninth roll. And it's about this deep of junk that you can't handle. So I went away from that thing and, and uh, I absolutely loved that. Those uh, homer stock rolls, easy maintenance, easy pull. Fabulous. Big thanks to Anna Cates and Tom Pifferone for today's discussion. The full transcript of the episode will be available at CoverCropStrategies.com slash podcasts. Many thanks to our sponsor, Source from Sound Agriculture, for helping to make this Cover Crop podcast series possible. From all of us here at Cover Crop Strategies, I'm McCain Vogel. Thanks for listening and have a great day.